The following content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hello, and welcome everyone to Always Another Way podcast. I am your host, Marina Sprocky Spriggs. I have a master's in professional counseling. I'm the Ippy award-winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life, and Nasty Divorce, A Kid's Eye View. I've been writing positive divorce advice for the HuffPost since 2012, and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast speaks to out-of-the-box thinkers, and it's for those who hear the call of hope in always another way. And if you're very rigid and set in your beliefs, then this probably is not your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can and do change. And we have a really great show for you today. And I'm just gonna kind of lead in talking about something that we all do, which is we oftentimes judge things by what we outwardly see. And then over time, as you mature and have more experiences, you realize that judging things solely on outward appearances is quite foolish. But that being said, we still rush to judgment based on what we see with our eyes, what we feel in our minds at that time, and whatever our own personal history that's serving us in that moment. And even then, and um, knowing about cognitive dissonance and uh, confirmation bias, the more you know, or at least for me, the more I know, the less I really know. And according to the National Institute of Health, pain is cited as the most common reason Americans access the healthcare system. More than 100 million Americans suffer with chronic pain. And chronic pain has many causes, known and unknown. So there are at least 100 million people out there who might look good on the outside, but suffer on the inside. And likewise, and I've talked about this before, but a lot of people still don't know about it, is the ACEs Too High study, which is one of the largest studies by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente about adverse childhood experiences. And that's what ACEs are. They are adverse childhood experiences that harm children's developing brains and lead to changing how they respond to stress, damaging their immune system so profoundly that the effects show up decades later. ACEs cause much of our burden of chronic disease, most mental illness, and are the root of most violence. The ACE study revealed six main discoveries. And by the way, you can go to acestohigh.com to access all this information, the science behind it, it's, it's great. But anyways, here are the six things that it found. ACEs are common. Nearly two-thirds, which is 64% of adults, have at least one. They cause adult onset of chronic disease, such as cancer and heart disease, as well as mental illness, violence, and being a victim of violence. ACEs do not occur alone. 
If you have one, there's an 87% chance that you have two or more. I have six, by the way. The more ACEs you have, the greater risk for chronic disease, mental illness, violence, and being a victim of violence. People who have an ACE score of zero to 10, and each type of trauma counts as one, no matter how many times it occurs. So you can think of an ACE score like a cholesterol score for childhood trauma. For example, people with an ACE score of four are twice as likely to be smokers and seven times more likely to be alcoholic. Having an ACE score of four increases the risk of emphysema or chronic bron bronchitis by nearly 400% and attempted suicide by 1200%. People with high ACE scores are more likely to be violent, more likely to have more marriages, more broken bones, more drug prescriptions, more depression, and more autoimmune diseases. People with an ACE score of six or higher are at risk of their lifespan being shortened by 20 years. ACEs are responsible for a big chunk of workplace absenteeism, for cost in healthcare, emergency response, mental health, and criminal justice. So the fifth finding from the ACE study is that childhood adversity contributes to most of our major chronic health, mental health, economic health, and social health issues. So on a population level, it doesn't matter which four ACEs the person has, the harmful consequences are the same. The brain cannot distinguish one type of toxic stress from another. It's all toxic stress with the same impact. So yeah, that's a big deal. But that being said, we are very resilient people. And speaking of that is why I wanna bring on my next guest. This is a woman who has an amazing story of perseverance and resilience. Alethea Black was born in Boston and graduated from Harvard in 1991. Her father was a mathematician, and for a long time, she believed her name, the Greek word for truth, was his way of tipping his cap to the idea of absolutes. And then one day, her mother overheard her and said, no, we got your name from a TV show, Judge for the Defense. Her first book, a short story collection called I Knew You'd Be Lovely, is in its seventh printing and was chosen as a Barnes & Noble Discover selection. Her new memoir, You've Been So Lucky Already, is now available. She's a three-time Moth Story Slam champion. Alethea lives with her miniature docs in Josie in LA County, California, and I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for being on, and I just really enjoyed just your book and hearing this journey, and it's titled You've Been So Lucky Already, and as um, I was reading this, but I wanted to ask you this. You have a story that maybe you can also share with everybody about this experience you had. But mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you titled this book of all the things you could title it for a particular reason. Well, interestingly, my editor actually pulled that line from the content of the book and chose it as the title. And I just had a wonderful edit on this book from Laura Vanderveer, so I'm still so grateful for that. But when you, um, I just wanted to say right off the top that when you speak of always another way, yeah. the, my, I was thinking about how strongly that resonates with exactly what happens in this story because, you know, here I am, I have a, a relatively happy life and then I wake up and find myself sick and I go to the doctor and they run tests and they essentially tell me that everything is fine, but my own body is telling me that everything is not fine, that everything is far from fine. 
So I, like so many people uh, nowadays, actually, sadly, had to find another way to address my own illness. And I think that that is really probably a quite common way in which the theme of your show is being lived out <gasps> across America right now. But um, in answer to your question, the so the first half of the book is, is uh, um, quite a bit about my relationship with my father and my high school years and then just that I really felt a very close bond with him and he was a mathematician and had a very unique style of parenting and was definitely sort of a find your own path um, type of person. I don't know if you've been close with a lot of uh, very serious science people, but they can be lovely friends because they just think completely outside the box and have, he, he for instance, had very little use for, um, you know, society says you can't wear white pants until Memorial Day, you know, he, nothing, like that resonated with him. He was used to looking at numbers and n numbers don't care about such things, right? Yeah. Numbers care about truth. And when he in fact was in college and they asked him at cocktail parties, or actually this was shortly after college, um, what do you do? He would say, I search. <laughs> and people would say, you search? Uh -huh. Search for what? And he would say, truth. So. Um, he was an unusual type of character, and it's partly from that type of thinking that, which is where I thought my name came from initially, was her, his um, respect for truth. But no, as I, as you said in the intro, it came from a TV show. <clears throat> but back to the title. So for the title, the first part of the book is my relationship with him and then he gets sick and then I find myself as a 20-something in Manhattan in the 1990s trying to find my way um, and it's sort of about some of the misadventures of that time and also of discovering who you are um, but at one at one point I was at a an outdoor sort of vending fair the street fair type of thing um, and there was a gypsy woman who was selling different stones and doing tarot card readings and so forth. And I picked up a moonstone rock ring and she said, oh, that ring is lucky. And I said, oh, great. I could use a little luck. And she held up a mirror and said, but you've been so lucky already. And it was my editor who then pulled oh, that line for the title. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Yes, and so, and I bet you got a lot of your out-of-the-box stuff from your father, too, thinking. I think, he, I think he empowered me at a young age to think things through for myself. And that, so it's interesting the ways, and I didn't even do this by design, but the ways in which the first half of the book sort of parallel the second half, because there, you know, later... Later, that same child who's having this experience at MIT with her professor father who brings her to work with him on Saturday morning, I'm then faced with a man in a white coat telling me that I'm fine. And actually, I think that what happens often as well, especially with women, 
is there's this implication that it's a mental health issue, right? And I'm saying, well, you know, I can't feel my left pinky is permanently numb, mm-hmm. and I have pins and needles in my feet all the time, and drenching night sweats all night, every night. And this was 10 years ago, so it was not, menopause was not a candidate. Right. And my, digest, my digestive system is not functioning properly, and my ears ring. And they can essentially explain away any physical symptom they want with anxiety. Yeah. They just say, oh, well, that's, that's just, that's anxiety. And, but and I you knew found it to be different it <laughs> eventually. I knew it was. Yeah. yeah. And let's talk, how does that make you, and I've had that happen too, where somebody just sort of just tosses it up to hormones or female or it's all in your head. But if you really think about it and just you went from a variety of people searching for an answer, and how is that to be told every time like in stark reality, like you know what you feel. You know, it's hard for somebody to tell you yeah. what you feel inside, but to directly just tell you and, and what that does actually to your psyche after a while of knowing what you feel inside and then having somebody tell you no. How, how do you deal well, with that? <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great point. I think it can be disorienting for people. I think that with a certain personality, you might also submit it, you might almost almost submit to what an external uh, voice of authority is telling you is the case. And I think that that actually was a turning point for me in the healing journey and in the healing process as well, which is that I, you know, by default, by default, I had to research my own symptoms. But in the process, I wound up locating authority inside myself rather than outside. And when I did that, I found that I had located power inside myself. And that was really a, a turning point in the healing process. I didn't, it, it happened un, unknowingly and almost intentionally, right? I went in as a classic thinker with regard to the medical system. Oh, well, I'm going to go to the doctor and they're going to do some tests and tell me what's wrong and fix me. Mm-hmm. And I had a completely another way experience from start to finish yeah. where they couldn't tell me what was wrong. I had to begin this years long process of research on my own, but it was so fruitful and led me in a direction that to be honest, I, I never could have gotten from within the system. I simply couldn't have gotten there because the system's not set up to point in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, and you can tell also by your by your writing in your book that you are a thinker and just think all sorts of different ways, you know, outside of the box and through things. And when you finally got that realization that, okay, I do have this power within me, and you say, and that just changed the trajectory of how you went, so where did you find that in yourself to keep you going after all of that? You know, what, what is it in you that says, okay, I don't accept this for an answer. I think I have the power and I can do something else. Well, um, that was, I have to say, I, I have to attribute that to this enormous community 
of others like me who have had to go off the reservation in search of medical answers because I, I was able to see, thanks to the internet, which incidentally is, is how all of this medical information and peer-reviewed studies and Google Scholar, as well as simply um, smart independent researchers, right, um, looking at illness, trying to get to the root cause, not accepting easy answers. You know, mainstream medicine, even if I had been given a diagnosis, is so geared towards here's a drug for your condition. Here's a drug. That's their, that's their answer. That's their one answer. Here's the drug. And if you say, well, what's the root cause? We don't know. But, you know, with any of the illnesses, cancer, ALS, Parkinson's, um, Alzheimer's, if you say, what is causing this? It, well, we don't know. We don't know. So in a way, it was a blessing in disguise that I wasn't fitting into that box because that box doesn't have any answers. Yeah. And then I was introduced to the idea of functional medicine, right? Where instead of go, go to mainstream medicine, they say, you say, they say, well, you have a tack in your foot. Here's a drug to quell the pain of the tack. Go to functional medicine and they say, let's find the tack and take it out. Yeah. So that was one a, a moment of awakening. But then the other was seeing tens of thousands of people who are on the same path with me in the trenches, not feeling well, doing their own research. And these are people, the, some of these people have been given the classical diagnosis and uh, diagnoses and offered the classical drugs and are simply trying to supplement that with, with an understanding of their own and others have rejected that paradigm and are going their own path and everyone in between. So it's not just, you know, the wild west of people who are completely, you know what I mean? It's a wide range of many highly educated, um, clear headed people who are just trying to get real answers and feel better and help their families feel better. So that was a huge source of support where I knew I wasn't doing it alone. There's so many illness groups on Facebook now where you can have instant community of people. You can say, well, I'm trying this therapy and they'll say, well, keep in mind this and you might also try that. And it literally is a way for one person to, for us to tap our collective knowledge. As, as a species, you know, the system isn't helping us. So we're going to band together and help ourselves. I love that. And that's in your truthfully just right. It is the, it's the band-aid society and that it, you know, band-aids only last for so long until you truthfully find that the root cause, um, which you did finally find some solutions and, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you know, cause you can tell by the way you feel now versus the way you feel then. And, um, and how do you feel about trusting nice, your body? Nice <laughs> yeah. And do you, um, do you think, um, if you were to give advice 
for somebody who would be searching for their truth now, what would you give advice to people that are maybe we're in the same boat as you? Like, I know what I feel inside and doctors or people are just telling me it's not this or it's, or maybe they're telling me it's something, but my only option is a pill and I don't want to go that way. What would you tell somebody who just in their body doesn't feel like they're in the right place with where they are, you know, physically? Well, I would just want to remind them to trust their own intuition that there can be, there's a lot of room and space for a hybrid approach that you can speak with your doctor. If it's a doctor that you think is, is um, on the same wavelength as you, and you can also look into things yourself and you can consult a second opinion and you can go to a functional medical doctor and that there is uh, a lot that can be done that I would basically remind them of Dr. Spock, you know, you know more than you think you do. And also there's a lot of information out there for the learning. Um, and in fact, with my own research, I was led down a completely unexpected path toward physics, toward quantum physics and its relationship to human health, which was utterly surprising and again, strangely linked back to the first half of my book where my father actually got his PhD in physics. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, you know, I myself am, am an English major and in no way I'm trying to pass myself off as a physicist. However, I found myself completely intrigued by um, and absorbed by quantum physics and its study of light and the physics of light. And after a while, I started to think, you know, what if all of the world's religions are correct and we are more than membranes and mitochondria? We are light and we follow light's rules. And part of what suggested this idea to me was in um, contemporary physics, there's a very strong movement nowadays, you've probably heard of it yourself, toward a this notion of a holographic universe, a simulated universe, or an emergence theory. There's different names for it, but what underpins them all is this concept that information is the more fundamental stuff of the universe and that matter emerges from it. And it's a very strange concept, um, but it's taken very, very serious. I mean, heads of departments, tenured lifetime physicists who have spent their lives studying this are convinced, you know, Nick Bostrom published a paper in 2003 and it's been largely, this idea is not at all radical in the scientific community, but it's so counterintuitive and contrary to what we experience every day with our senses, that it hasn't really gained a grip in the mainstream community and certainly not in the medical community. However, if we are light and we follow light's rules, light can light speed is constant. It can't speed up and it can't slow down. When light speeds up, time slows down. And when light slows down, time speeds up. And I started to think, ah, I wonder if that's what's happening with us. When we slow down, time speeds up and we call it Parkinson's. When we speed up, 
time slows down and we call it ALS where you essentially slow down until you can't move. Parkinson's, you essentially speed up until you can't move. What if time itself is a, an electromagnetic field, you know, a gravity to electricity ratio? And in the human body, that can be expressed as iron to manganese. And if you have too much manganese, it's essentially a kind of electricity toxicity aka Parkinson's and lo and behold they're starting to tell Parkinson's patients keep an eye on your manganese right and what if ALS is essentially iron toxicity or gravity toxicity and I was looking at pictures of Stephen Hawking over time you know comparing pictures of him over the course of his beautiful life and it was almost as if I could see the gravity on him see the effects of gravity in his person wow. over time. So I never would have uh, been thinking in these ways if I had stayed inside that little teeny tiny box. Right. That little teeny tiny box. And if you start to look at illness through the lens of time, right, and think maybe illness is all a result of errors in the way we create time, and it, it starts to have myriad applications across the board. I started to look at cancer and say, oh, what if this, um, what if, it's essentially, if you, now I say, what causes cancer? You want the short answer? E equals MC squared. E equals MC squared. Mass energy equivalence. When, as we move through time, the mass energy equivalence is shifting more towards energy and away from mass, right? So if we are all constantly creating time, then you can, you know, Einstein said in 1955, way back in March of 1955, past, present, and future, the distinction between past, present, and future is an illusion, however tenacious this illusion might be. How, how is that possible? How can past, present, and future all coexist? Well, here's one way. They're all happening now, and isn't that what all the sages have been telling us forever? But they're happening at different speeds. The past is happening more quickly than we are, and the future is happening more slowly. So from this given moment in time, the past hasn't quote unquote happened yet, but it's happening so quickly, it's as if it has. And the future has already quote unquote happened, but it's happening so slowly, it's as if it has not. Now that's a little bit, um, you know, strange. I love that you're laying it there. all out here. Yeah. I like that you're laying it all out <laughs> like that. It's very, very interesting. And, and definitely, well, like you said, like serious also research behind the quantum physics and then also just all that cool stuff. Yeah, well, the, the last thing I'll say is that, and then we can move on to other topics, yeah. but when you start to think of time as happening at different speeds and the past is happening more quickly, then you start to think, well, I wonder if cancerous cells are cells that have synced with the wrong time signature and they are also, quote, you know, cycling time too quickly. Wouldn't that mean that they would appear to be a healthy cell that's over replicating? Hmm. Very interesting. 
<laughs> yeah. I, li I like where you're going with all this. It's just, I mean, just so many just things you could look into because guess what? We don't know everything and always more to learn. We don't. We yeah. don't. And I should add that that sound in the background is the sound of my editor fainting because the, the, my health theories are not in the book. The book is a narrative memoir about my life and my dad and my getting sick. And she worked hard to, yeah. to, to not have it be um, amateur physics hour. Well, that's okay because um, it's, it's so I, all related. And it just, I think, gives people an insight because we want them to read this book too of just of what just a smart and out-of-the-box thinker you are. And, um, and I think it's just so inspirational how you just came through, just every difficulty you came through, you did find another way to kind of move around it, figure it out, move forward, still question yourself, but still have this perseverance to not stop, but to go on. And I love that. So that being said, yeah, is there anything else that you would like our audience to know about you, about the book, all that stuff? Well, if they are piqued, if their interest is piqued by the possible relationship between human health and physics, I blog about that at Welcome to Heaven. I, my author website is just aletheablack.com, and I'm on the Facebook. I'm on the Twitter, but I don't really uh, tweet I just sort of joined recently, and I have yet to be swayed <laughs> by that particular wave, but maybe that will come in the future. And, um, yeah, that's, that's about the scoop. Well, all right. Well, Alethea, it was just, it was so nice talking to you. And for everybody listening, you can check her out. All those places, I will put it in the show notes her blog, her regular website page, and you can get her book at any bookstores, Amazon, I'm sure just everywhere they can get it. And yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, the uh, you've been so lucky already. And they have it, Amazon has it hard copy or Kindle, or they had me record the audiobook myself, which was quite an experience. I have to say, unless you have recounted all of your life's experiences in a row out loud, the, the funniest, saddest, scariest moments of your life. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> you really, you really haven't knocked yourself out. That was, um, I was quite a couple days, but I think it came out really beautifully. I'm, I'm happy, very happy with the audiobook, especially because I'm an audiobook listener yeah, myself. So. Me too. I'm and even cooler when the, um, when the author reads it. So that's extra special, I think that you're on there. I think it adds another layer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alethea, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. And I want all of our guests my, to know. Go ahead. I was just going to say my pleasure, my great pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. And you know, everybody listening, there is always another way. Thank you.